Good morning. It's good to know that I've got five guitars up here to use at any time during the sermon. It's good that I, will, uh, I can pick and choose and get to each one. I may try to play each one during the sermon, a different song. Uh, if you'd indulge me for just a second, um, I just thought the music was absolutely beautiful this morning. And, and, and for a real personal reason, um, when my father was passing, my father died about 18 years ago. And uh, I've missed my dad a lot this week. Does that ever happen to you, that things that you seem, that you kind of think are over, they just kind of bubble back up? I miss my dad a lot this week. But when he died, in my understanding, my father wasn't a Christian. And, but I knew he grew up in lower Alabama. So that would be L.A. Um, <laughs> and I knew as a boy he heard the gospel. And so as he was in the latter stages of Alzheimer's, I would go to the hospital. And I found this. <laughs> I think I can tell this story. Um, but, but the songs reminded me of them. I found this this tape called Smoky Mountain Hymns. And they were just old hymns done with guitar and a banjo and a mandolin. And then they were just sung. And it was like, in, in both, the, the first two songs we sang were on the album. And I remember uh, sitting, with the, sitting there um, as, he was, as, as he was dying um, and, and hoping somehow that, um, that that music might stir some something, something that he heard as a boy, something, I know this is probably horrible theology, but you're just a kid in a room um, with your father passing away. And so I remember, so as I was sitting here this morning listening to that music, I, my, my mind just spins back to 18 years ago in a hospital room listening to In the Garden and, um, and, and listening to the banjo and a guitar and, and then hearing the guitars play it here and, and, and just what a rich, powerful memory for me. And so thanks for letting me indulge just to tell you that story. The, the music this morning was just incredibly powerful. Um, and so, so um, really enjoyed that. I mean, we could go home now. I mean, this has been church. Um, <laughs> however, we're not going to let you go home now. <laughs> I have a two-and-a-half-hour sermon I'd like to go over with you. Um, what, what I'd like to start with, if I could, kind of a... A little bit odd, I'd like to start with a confession. Um, and this may ruin my private practice. Many of you know I'm a psychologist. I teach at Reformed Theological Seminary as a counselor. And, uh, and, and here's my confession. I have no idea what I'm doing. <laughs> you're, you're laughing. Um, <laughs> People come to me and they want me to do things I can't do. Uh, the problem is when you start believing you really can do those things, people will come to me and they want me to change their emotions, change how they feel. I can't change how somebody feels. Then people will come to me and they want me to change their circumstances. I can't change their circumstances. Sometimes people will come to me and they want me to give them a formula to follow that if they just follow that formula, it will guarantee that everything will turn out exactly the way they want it to. I've been looking for those formulas all my life. And so I find myself in a job where I'm supposed to know all the answers. Hurting people show up. And I don't think I, I know the answers. I think I know the answer 
I just don't think I know the answers to the questions they're always asking. I can't imagine the pressures put on my family to be married and be the child, to be the child of the, the children of, of an answer man that knows how everything is supposed to be done. I wonder what that's been like, the kind of pressure that puts you under. You all have been doing a series the last few weeks on American values versus God's values. And this morning, I'd like to talk about an American value of pragmatism. Did a study of, of famous American speeches. And if I were up at my notes, I'd tell you who did that study, but just trust me, they did a study of a, a famous American uh, political speeches. And from that, they, they took all that data and they said, let's come together and decide what are American values. And they, they gave the list of, their, of American values. But one of those values is pragmatism. Pragmatism is the belief that the results determine how you do things, that you measure things by results, that the results determine the strategy. Pragmatism, America's famous for it. We do what works. You can't argue with results. Those are all comments that come from pragmatism. There's a philosophy that has also kind of born, born, out, of, born out of pragmatism. It's uh, started by William James, who, interestingly enough, was one of the first psychologists. And, and he had the same idea that philosophy, psychology, the way we live our lives should be measured by our results. Now, he ended up giving up on psychology by the end of his career, called it a dirty little science, even though he's considered one of the founders of psychology. I guess it's hard to really believe in psychology if you don't believe in an unseen hand that's authoring the lives of people. And since he didn't believe in that, I think the mystery, mysterious way in which people's lives sometimes didn't always follow the practical, pragmatic way made him just kind of give up on it. So my confession to you this morning is I'm a psychologist that people come to for the answers, and I don't always have the answers they want. Now, there's biblical principles that if you follow are, 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 are helpful, and they, and they, but they're principles, not necessarily promises. They're not formulas that plug people in. I mean, we live in a world where missionary kids become drug addicts, and drug addicts' kids become missionaries. I don't understand it always. And we look at our own children and we sacrifice and we say, why is this working or why isn't that working? This past week, uh, a member of my family, not, not from here in Maitland, um, get, get called. Um, not, not my brother, so someone, um, someone else from my extended family. And they're really disappointed. They're struggling with their daughter. Their daughter's not becoming what they want them to become. It's a little harder when it's your own family that's calling you for the answers that you don't have the answers for. That makes you feel, you know, even more pressure. I've got to come up with that answer. And so at first, you try to wrestle with the idea of, well, maybe you uh, try to see what's going on in your daughter's life. Because after all, all behavior is purposeful, right? We're image bearers of God, and so our behavior... We are teleological beings. That's how, a good, that's how Jeff would say it, being a theologian. We're teleological beings, meaning that our behavior is moving us in a direction. As an image bearer of God, our behavior is purposeful. So it's, it's sometimes wise that 
when, you're, when someone's behavior is, makes you scratch your head, that, that you ought to consider, I wonder what's going on with them. And, and that was a little bit helpful for the, this, this phone call, but not that much help. And then, I, then we, I suggested that we wrestle with what their parenting strategies had been. Maybe they could look at their own shortcomings as parents. And, and these people have read all the books, I mean, in the church library. They, they could probably write a book on the church library about how to parent. So much, just, that, that's just the way they are. But it was a little bit helpful to, it was a little bit helpful for them to wrestle with the idea that, that how did they parent, and maybe they overparented, or maybe they did this wrong, or maybe they did that wrong. It was somewhat helpful for them to, to kind of hear some of that, to look at their own parenting style. We also challenged them to look at their marriage and how they connected together. And, and not only though, not only was the mother very, very good, the father was pretty involved as well with his daughter. And, and so all the things, secretly, I've got to commit, I've got to tell you, I, inside when I hear stories like this, I keep thinking, what did they do wrong? Because I'm not going to do that so my kid doesn't struggle. What did they do wrong? What did they do wrong so that my kid will end up being okay? Because I'm looking for a formula. I'm looking for a way that always works. And then there was even a discussion with this person. They brought up the book, book of Proverbs, and they said, you know, what, is, what about raising up a child the way he should go? And if you raise up a child, he will not depart, right? We talked about the idea that that's more of a principle necessarily than a promise. They said, no, we're going to claim it. And as we talked about that verse and that, Raise up a child in the way it should go. That phrase, raise up, is from the same Hebrew word that, 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 uh, that was used when a, when, a, when, a, um, when a... Just a second. There is a danger to kind of walking around while you talk. You lose your place. Um... Did I mention that they talked about that verse? I think I did. Let's find that place in my notes. Well, here it is now. And as they, uh, and as they looked into that verse, they, they found that that, that that word, that Hebrew word, is the same word that's used for a midwife to create a desire for an infant to suck. And that, and that, that, that some ways to look at that verse when it says, raise up is to kind of create a desire. And so we talk about, did you create a desire for Christ in your kid's life? And in the way he should go is, is, can, is, is almost in the way that he's wired and the way he's bent. Did you understand how your child was wired and bent? These are pretty good parents and they've done a lot of thinking about all that. And at the end, it was just an exhausting conversation because they were just sad about the direction their daughter had moved. Felt like they couldn't fix it were willing to face their own struggles and problems, but it seems so mysterious. How could it be? Because they believed, like all good Americans, that when you plug in the formula, you can always measure it from the result. The short-term result will always prove you right. The proof is in the pudding. Pragmatism that I'll always get when I invest my money, I'll always get money back. If I sacrifice, it'll work. The sad thing often is the more someone sacrifices, the more they feel entitled unless Christ intervenes and the more subtle demand they put on others. 
So what do we say to this person? Well, I would want to suggest to you that the first thing I'd want to remind you of this morning is that that maybe we've got it all wrong. Maybe God is not interested in this Bible being a cookbook that you apply so that you get good biscuits when you finish. Maybe he's more interested in not being, maybe God's more interested not in us using him to solve our problems. Maybe God is more interested in using our problems to bring us to him. Maybe, well, let me say that again. Maybe God's more concerned that not that we use him to solve our problems, but maybe he's more, more God, maybe God is more concerned that he uses our problems to bring us to him. Maybe God is about a bigger thing than just a short-term result. And maybe, maybe God is seeing this in a very, very different way. Now, there were a lot of places I thought we should look at in Scripture today, and there's plenty we could, we could look in, in where Paul, to, the, to his letter to the church in Corinth, usually the word fool is used in the Old Testament, in a, I mean, in the Old and New Testament in a pejorative sense. But Paul, Paul kind of stretches that when he talks to the church in Corinth, and he he talks about being a fool for Christ, and we could talk about that. that. That might have been a good place to go. We could even look at one of the, one of the miracles where Jesus changed, uh, when Jesus fed the 5,000 with, with, just, with just loaves and fish. Because it doesn't make sense. It wasn't practical. And then in the middle of that, God changed the whole dynamic. But instead, I thought we'd look at the verse that's often used to or the, the story, the parable, that's often used to justify pragmatism. There's a parable that's often used, and at the end of that parable, people kind of scratch their head and will sometimes say, and it's not preached very often, though it is right next door, and should therefore be interpreted by, or help be interpreted by, the most, the most talked about parable in Scripture. But it's the parable of the unjust steward. And in the parable of the unjust steward, a quick, a quick read of it, people will say, well, God is saying that. I mean, even though this guy lied and stealed, he was a good person because he got what he wanted. And so sometimes that parable is used to kind of justify pragmatism. And I would want to suggest to you that's not what that parable teaches at all. And so why don't we spend just a few minutes walking through that parable together, okay? And at the end of that, we'll make a couple conclusions about how God might want us to see him and how he might want us to see life and struggles. And then maybe we'll visit back with this family, um, friends of mine, this, this family of mine that's struggling with, um, with, their, with their deal. So let's look together. It's found in Luke 16, as you know. It's interesting. Luke 16 is... Um, is right next to Luke 15. Luke 15. You've got to be a scholar to note those subtleties. Now, you know that originally when this was written, they didn't separate by chapters. And so the parable that ends at the end of Luke 15 is what parable? The prodigal son. Probably the most preached parable in all of the Bible. This next parable, because it's so troubling, often is the least, one of the least preached parables. Kind of odd, they're right next to each other. I think you need one to interpret the other. 
As a matter of fact, remember, Scripture should always be interpreted through Scripture. And there's some scholars that would even suggest that this parable is an appendix to the, to the prodigal parable. So let's look at it together. Just read it with you. I'll read it with you. I'm going to read out of the NIV. Let me take a drink of water. <coughs> I'm allergic to microphones. It causes an inflammation. All right. Luke 16. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man who was a manager, uh, whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can, cannot be a manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I am not strong enough to dig and I'm, I'm too ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do. I'll do, I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of the master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly and make it 400. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill, make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he'd acted shrewdly for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own with their own kind than the people of the light i tell you use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone you will be welcomed in eternal dwellings whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with very much and whoever is dishonest and very little will be dishonest and very much So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true wealth, true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? Just a couple more. The the servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate one and love the other, or he will devote to one and, and despise the other. We cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all of this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eye of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. It's an interesting story. Um, A couple of side notes about this story. In the fourth century, an apostate by the name of Julian used this parable to go and try to convince the Romans to reject Christianity because he suggested that this was corrupt teaching, that Jesus was teaching his followers to be liars and deceivers, and he used this parable to make that point. He would talk about this parable and say, as Roman citizens, we can't trust Christians. They are liars and cheaters, and this was his, this was his proof text. Clearly, he didn't understand the meaning of the parable, just like if you understand it as a justification of ends meets Um, ends justify the means, you don't understand that parable either. You ought to be aware, culturally, it's an old story retold by Jesus. (coughs) What keeps the sermon short is the inflammation gets worse and worse, and then when my throat closes up completely, I have to call off the sermon. So that's that's where we're going. Uh, The, uh, it's an old story retold, it's, it's a very common story 
in oppressed societies to have a, a Robin Hood-like story. A Robin Hood-like story would mean, so in this cultural time, in an oppressed society, it would be a very common story, a folk story, to be told in that culture of someone who, who deceived the dishonest oppressor and gave to the people who were under his thumb. And so when Jesus tells the story, he retells the story in a different way. It would have been a, the basic idea of the story of a Robin Hood-like, steal from the rich to give to the poor. That would be understood culturally in that time, right? But he tells the story different because the master in this story is not evil but good. And that's the difference because the master in this story represents... God the Father. And so Jesus, in his way to capture the audience, and the way to teach this lesson, he tells the story that they're familiar with, but twists it. And it's not a story of a Robin Hood who goes and steals from an oppressor, but it becomes a story of a, of a deceiver who gives to the poor, but he's really stealing from someone who's good. You see, the parallels between the prodigal son parable and this parable are very, are, are very significant. In both stories, there is a good father, a good master, a son who squanders wealth, a servant or a steward who squanders. At the sight of loss and great loss, there is a change. And at the end, there's a realization of what a good father and master we have. So there's great parallels between the two, the two parables, parables, and they teach some of the same basic truths. But so often, because this story um, is, a, is a story retold by Jesus that culturally would be understood, we've lost some of, that, some of the power of the story, and we've turned it into kind of justification to do whatever we want because it works. That's not biblical. It, the, remember, the Scripture informs us about Scripture. You won't find in Scripture God saying deceit is good. That's not what is good in this story. What is good in this story is the bad steward bets his life on the fact that the master really is good. The bad steward bets his life on the fact that the, that the master really is good because he could be put in jail. He could have, matter of fact, his family in that day, in that day and time could have actually been sold to slavery to pay off the, the, what, what, he had, uh, what he had stolen. And so he is betting on the goodness of the master. Isn't that interesting? Now, a couple of things about the story and then we'll, we'll like a gazelle going through the Serengeti, we'll finish it up quickly, okay? Um, just before my throat closes up. It'll be an exciting, exciting moment. Um, what happens in the story, you, you, you get the story, we've, we've read it. The story is that there's a, a lazy, conniving steward. It is probably of a farm, of land not of a bank account, because what are, the, what are the debtors paying with? They're paying with crops. They're paying with, with oil and with wheat. And so because of that, chances are 
that this is a, this is a landowner who owns everything and then leases out his property to people to work the land and then has, has paid for this person to be a steward to collect his portion back from the people he's he's rented the land to. Now, how do we know he's a good steward? I mean, how do we know he's a good master? Well, first of all, the fact that, that people told him he was being cheated implies that he was a good master. Um, a, good, a good master, you know, if, 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 a, if a bad master is being cheated on, chances are people don't go and tell him. So he's told that you've been cheated on. He then, instead of immediately firing, firing the man, he comes and, lets the man ha- and comes to the man and says, what is this I hear about you? That's so much like the way God deals with so many of us. I'm thinking of when he, when he found Adam. Adam, where are you? As if he didn't know where Adam was. Um, he always gives, that, always gives that question to us to see if we can own up. The silence implies he knows he's guilty. And then he's fired. You were no longer my steward. Give me back my books or the accounting books. Make an accounting. There's an article before that, that, that word, which would mean that it is the, 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 the books. He needs to go get the books. So evidently what happens in this story is the, the steward is now fired. And he has great loss. And upon that loss is a realization, I'm in trouble. It's amazing what loss does to us. So much of living in a fallen world is understanding how to deal with loss. You see, in the story of the prodigal son, just previous to this, he deals with loss by realizing it's better. It's better back in my father. Life is better there. The servants are treated better than I. I am hungry. Remember, that's the turning point. He's eating the pig slop and he says, basically, I'm hungry. And even the servants do better than this. I'm going home. There was loss. Loss has a way of of changing our behavior. Whereas now this man, he had loss and he changed it in a different direction. He is now fired. He's going to get his books and he says to himself, I'm in trouble. I'm too weak to dig. I'm too proud to beg. I'm in trouble. What am I going to do? So he decides basically that he knows that this master is good enough that he probably won't kill him. And he probably won't destroy his family. And he decides to take advantage of that goodness. And he then pulls in the people. Now, these other people, they don't know that he's fired. So the assumption of the story is they're brought in and he says, quickly, uh, how much do we owe? How much do you owe? Uh, eight hundred. Well, here, write it down. Write it just 400. Now, we don't know from the story whether they know or don't know that it's the master's doing, but we can assume they still think he works for the master. They don't know that he's fired yet because he wouldn't have the authority to do that if he didn't still work for the master. They wouldn't have written that out if they didn't think that he had the authority. So he is, he's, everything he's doing now in the story is illegal because he doesn't work for him anymore. Maybe that's where we, maybe it's from this story we got the idea that when you fire somebody, you say, there's a security guard with me. <laughs> Clean out your desk. You have five minutes. Maybe that's where that comes from because 
he said, I'll go get the books. And as he goes to get the books, he starts cutting deals for himself, bringing people in. And it's pretty significant deals um, in terms of how much he, he cuts away. I would assume, what, would, what do you think would happen once it got out in the village, if, if, if all this property was owned by one landowner, and all of a sudden deals are cut and people don't owe as much as they do, what do you think is happening out in the village at this point? I mean, I think it's a party. I think people are going, you can't believe it. We, owe, we only owe half of what we owed. I mean, what would happen here? If all of a sudden I said, listen, I've got enough money. Bring all your bills up. You owe half of what you owe as opposed to what's happened with our mortgage crisis where you owe twice of what it's worth. I mean, it would be the opposite effect. I mean, we would, you'd, you'd celebrate. And so here's what happens. He cuts a deal, the world is celebrating, and now he comes back and gives back, gives the books back to the master. The master knows what's happened. So what does he do? Does he go back and say to the people, wait a minute, this is gain you didn't really get. Quit the partying. You really owe me 800 No, he doesn't do that. He chooses to give grace in spite of where it came from. At the end of the day, an evil man bet on the goodness of God. What do you need to do? What ultimately happens to this man? We don't know. Why is he counted as good? Because he's deceptive? No, I think he's counted as good because he actually believed that the master was good and acted upon that. So you and I, as we look at our lives, though, so what? I just would want to suggest to you that God is not measuring our lives with a short ruler, and you shouldn't either. God measures your parenting not by how they're doing today, but whether you're faithful or not. Some of your kids will turn out really good. Some of your kids will turn out really crappy. That's a word that we're not supposed to use, supposed to use here. But I'm a psychologist. I can say words that preachers can't say. Some of your kids will be a struggle. Some of your kids will turn out great. Some of your marriages will be great with not much problem. Some of them will just be an absolute mess. Some of you will be in ministry and you'll taste betrayal. The very people you've ministered to will turn their back on you. Some of you will, will invest in something, pour yourself into it, and it'll just fall apart. I know pastors that are faithful whose churches are barely making it, and I know some pastors that are snakes, and it seems like their church is going, going well. It doesn't work the way you think it does always because God is more concerned with your heart, and he's more concerned with your faithfulness, and he's more concerned with you becoming the person that he's made you to be, someone that reflects his glory, someone that reflects his purposes, someone who lives in such a way that people see Jesus See, that's what he wants to do with your life. And we reduce him to just a, we reduce him to be a butler that makes our lives go better and, and gives us a good parking spot in front of Kmart and, and helps us make, and helps us when we're in a hurry get all green lights. I mean, it's like we reduce God to some sort of, 
some sort of little butler. Don't do that. Don't measure life with such a short ruler. Let the ruler that you measure life with be a ruler that, is, that bets your life on the goodness of God. That bets your life on the goodness of God. And when you experience loss, and you will, you will experience loss on this side of heaven because as the song so beautifully said that she sang for us, you don't belong here. And when you experience loss, let it be that you're like the prodigal who comes back, who bets his life on the goodness of God, whose hope on becoming more like him. Look at the last verse in this section. The Pharisees, they did not like this story at all. Because they never really bet on the goodness of God. The Pharisees bet on the the fact that they could manipulate God by doing what they thought God wanted them to do. See, that's not loving God. That's making God a deal maker. Pharisees didn't like this story one bit. The Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, please listen to Jesus' words to the Pharisees. Because, quite frankly... They're words to us, too. I sometimes wish I were more like the disciples in the Bible. But sometimes when I'm really honest, I'm more like the Pharisees. I'm sometimes more like Cain than Abel. Sometimes more like the Pharisees than the disciples. Sometimes more like this deceiving servant than the returning prodigal. So hear the words... You are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men. But God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. My fellow Americans, pragmatism. The idea that the end justifies the means the idea that it's all okay if the, if the results are okay, that might not be a bad business belief. Might not be a bad way to plan to cut your grass. But it's not a biblical way to live in relationship with him and with others. You and I, this day in this place, let us be people who bet our souls on the very goodness of our God. And may he make us more like him. Amen.